The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Well, it's good to be with you, church. Uh, my name is Scott. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Harvest City, and uh, one of our hopes since we planted this church over four years ago now uh, is that uh, I would be one pastor on a diverse pastoral team uh, leading us uh, in a multi-ethnic church that exhibits unity in the midst of diversity by the power of the gospel and to the glory of God. And I just want to say that this last few weeks has been one where we've gotten to see unity in the midst of diversity in this season uh, in a number of ways. And And it keeps me and I think our elder team really encouraged that God is indeed doing this. Uh, in our midst. So uh, thank you uh, for the ways that y'all have been a part of that. Well, this, uh, this, this morning, uh, kind of a bummer, we're stepping away from the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, but don't worry, we're going to stay in our big, bi- big boy Bibles this morning, okay? Uh, not going somewhere else other than that. Uh, but in this whole story, most of the texts are texts that like, are also in the Jesus Storybook Bible, so they can track with us downstairs. This morning, however, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. And in chapter 13, God's people send out spies into, to scout out the promised land. And then the rest of the story is about the report that the spies bring back, the response of God's people, and then God's response uh, to their disobedience. And so, like we've heard about uh, throughout this series, our our goal is, as we look at this story, to look at it in the context of the whole story of Scripture. And this story, uh, and the fact that I've had uh, many conversations this week, like literally had one conversation in a neighbor's driveway this week, I had another one uh, on, the, on the phone this week, uh, had another one on our uh, back deck last Sunday night, uh, lots of conversations about real estate recently, okay, and about home buying and, and, and things like that. And so all of that and um, this text has me thinking about the importance of a faithful realtor, okay? So go with me here. You're gonna, I want you to think about some of the parallels with the story that we're going to be looking at and uh, this whole process of buying and selling homes with a realtor. So a realtor, you could say, it's kind of like a spy, okay? A realtor is a spy that maybe even goes in with you or maybe that you send ahead of you to scout out uh, the place where you're hoping uh, that might be uh, your future home, right? A realtor could be one of the people to give you uh, the first report, whether good or bad, not just about the home that you're considering buying, but about the neighborhood that it's within, right? About the school district that it's uh, placed in, uh, about the people that you're going to live around, those kind of things. And because of this, because of the way that a realtor is situated in the midst of your home buying experience, both your realtor and you have a very important role in you ending up in the house that God has for you. You might even say the the house God promised you. Acts 17 says he knows the times and the places where we're going to live, y'all. And so he's a part of that process, okay? So... uh, in the midst of this, it's got me thinking about uh, our experience, Emily and I's experience when we first moved uh, to Iowa City, okay? So uh, here this, like we spent months and months praying about what was next for us after uh, a season of college ministry uh, at the University of Northern Iowa where both of us started following Christ, both of us were di- discipled, and all of that happened in college ministry, and uh, we knew that God had called us to the University of Iowa, 
uh, the thing that we hadn't really considered all that much uh, was that the University of Iowa was in Iowa City, okay? And so uh, get that, like, you know, just pretty simple logical step for most of you probably. Uh, but to be honest, it wasn't something that we'd spent a lot of time about, we, thinking about. We knew God had called us to do college ministry at the University of Iowa. And so when we came uh, for our first time down to Parkview Church, the church that had hired us to do college ministry here, uh, uh, and they said, hey, this is the realtor we recommend, uh, we just jumped in wholeheartedly. And like legitimately, one of the first people we met that lived in Iowa City was our realtor. Her name is Trisha Van Rokel. And uh, Trisha is, in my mind, a picture of a faithful realtor. Think about some of these things. We knew that God had called us to do ministry at the University of Iowa. We didn't know much about this city, but guess who did know a whole lot about Iowa City? Guess who gave us a report on this city and the different parts of this city and where we might live and where we might experience fruit and the calling that God had for us? You see, Trisha drove us all over the city to all these different homes. She had a great amount of influence in where we ended up in this city on the west side, and she listened to us. She knew God's call on our lives and and used her influence to guide us as we trusted in God's promise and made a couple of the biggest decisions we'd ever made together, together as a married couple up to that point. You see, both the story that we're gonna get into today and... Trisha's example to me should challenge us to think about how we stand on God's promises and also how we, the influence that we have on others as they seek to stand on the promises of God. So this morning, I think God wants each one of us to hear because God is faithful to fulfill all of his promises. We must faithfully stand on his promises and influence others to do the same. Y'all, uh, today has me feeling in vain with uh, the old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God. That's what we're going to title uh, this sermon this morning as we lean in. Well, like I said earlier, uh, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 13 and 14 this morning. So if you want to pull out, there, there's a Bible under your chairs. Uh, I believe we're going to be on pages 69 and 70 in those Bibles. Uh, as you're pulling out your Bible, you can pull it up on your phone, however you want to follow along. I just want to cast vision for a little bit of context for this story, okay? Uh, by the way, if you don't have uh, a Bible at home, take one of those Bibles home with you. Uh, consider it a gift from our church. But here we go. This is the context of the story that we're rolling into this morning in light of the whole story that we've been talking about. Okay? The, the book of Numbers is set soon after Exodus of the Israelites out of Egypt, right? We remember what happened in Egypt, right? I'll give you a quick refresher, okay? Uh, so Egypt was literally, uh, not literally, sorry, it was uh, basically hell on earth for uh, the Israelites, okay? We're talking 400 years of slavery and death. That's what God's people experienced there. There were two stories running parallel in Egypt, though, by God's grace, right? One of them is a story of slavery, and the other is a story of hope. So think about the story of hope that runs parallel with the story of slavery. In Genesis 15, God told Abram that this people would live in a land that was good, right? Like Egypt looked a little too good to them at times. But the only thing was that that would not happen until after 400 years of slavery in a land that was not their own. So uh, you're thinking, okay, check, 400 years of slavery. Now, now they can start looking for this good land that God had promised to them. So these people have been holding on to a promise, this promise that God will deliver us, that he'll hold our captors accountable, and he'll put us in a land that it's good. 
then those people are freed from the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt. This is what Mike preached about uh, a few weeks ago. They set out on their journey then, and they encounter an obstacle, right? Uh, the Red Sea. It's standing between them and where uh, God has for them. Man, Siri keeps interrupting me, you guys. I'm going to have to start preaching without my Apple Watch, okay? She has too much to say about the Word of God on Sunday mornings. Uh, so anyway, they set out their journey. They run into the Red Sea. First, God takes care of that obstacle, right? He parts the sea on the right and the left, and they walk through on dry land. They've got another obstacle. There's a people chasing after them in chariots, and those people uh, uh, could take them down. Well, God takes care of that obstacle. He just swallows them up in the Red Sea as he puts the right hand and the left hand of the sea back in its place. And so uh, then the people, if you are keeping track, are like, well, God, uh, he's running up the scoreboard. Uh, all these other obstacles, they're not doing very well the people are are are, they're free they're finally free after 400 years of slavery uh they're probably super excited and so the book of numbers picks up uh in the beginning of year two post egypt okay moses the leader of god's people has been given a job and it's a bit of a doozy to be honest uh but it's something that hasn't has to be done okay uh to me uh what moses has to do out here in the wilderness is kind of like what my wife has to do every year at the beginning of the school year okay she's a kindergarten teacher at coralville central and one of the things that she has to do isn't teach kids about uh reading and numbers and stuff like that like certainly she does that but i think that's probably the easiest part of her job okay I think the most difficult part of her job is teaching kindergartners, most of whom, many of whom have never even had preschool, right, in her school district at least, in her school, uh, to like stand in a line, uh, to walk in a line, and to do that without touching each other or touching all of the things around them, okay? Uh, This is a very uh, arduous task. But Moses is up for the job, okay, and uh, he's ready to get to the land that God had promised, But there's some work that for sure needs to be done and some ordinances that need to be followed until they get there. So Moses gets to work. That's what the first 10 chapters of Numbers are. They're they're full of excitement and things seem to be going well. Moses is told he has to count all the people. And then he he counts like 600,000 men. And uh, that would mean that we're talking like something like 2 million people total, okay, among God's people. Uh, He even doles out other duties. He gives each tribe a duty and a responsibility. The tabernacle set up right in the middle of the people to show them that God is going to give them direction every step of the way by his leading as evidenced by a cloud of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night where God leads his people follow. Right? This should have been the story of the people of Israel all the time. Uh, it should be our story today, but we kind of all know how that turns out at times, right? Then Numbers 11 and 12 hits, and the game starts changing a little bit. The people start complaining more and more. Uh, and listen, it's not just the people uh, way down the ladder complaining. It's starting to get up right in uh, Moses' uh, side, right? It's Aaron, it's Miriam, it's people really close to him turning against him. Moses is getting ready to uh, get in the promised land. Uh, and at one point, the complaining seems to be killing him. And in the next point, he's like trying to convince God not to do the same thing to the people who are complaining. And after a few series of events, the people set about on the final leg of the journey. And that's where we're going to pick up this morning in Numbers chapter 13. The final leg of the journey before the promised land. 
So I'm going to just hit some sections because if I was to read all uh, of these two chapters to you this morning, uh, that's all we do, and then we'd be out of here, okay? So here we go. I'm going to start in verse 2, or 1 and 2, and then I'll bounce around in Numbers 13 and 14, but I'll tell you where I'm going. 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. I'm going to jump down to verse 17. Here we go. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes, so they went up and spied out the land. I'm going to jump down to verse 25. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran and at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However... The people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able. We are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land uh, through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there uh, we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. Then... All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night, and the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Church, because God is faithful to fulfill his promises, we must faithfully stand on his promises and influence others to do the same. As we look at Numbers chapter 13 and 14 together this morning, we're going to see that we must faithfully stand on the promises of God. That many times the reason we don't is because we walk by sight and not by faith. That Jesus is the true and better leader who quiets our anxiety so that we can follow him by faith. And that in Christ, we are a people of promise who are able to overcome. Will you all pray with me? God, as we enter into this word this morning, we want first and foremost to hear from you. God, we know uh, that you are a God of promise, but at times... We tend to drift from our identity as a people of promise. God, would you meet us in the midst of that drifting this morning? Would you draw us near? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that long to follow you? 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, y'all, lesson number one this morning is this. We must faithfully stand on the promises of God, okay? So I've been thinking a lot about this old hymn, Standing on the Promises of God, My Savior. And uh, as I've been thinking about uh, this idea of standing on the promises, I've been thinking about how standing on something is a lot like uh, putting faith in it or putting trust in it, right? So think about this uh, illustrated for us. How many of y'all like slackline? Anybody here uh, like just loves to jump on a slackline, you know, like uh, tie one of those joints up between some trees and hop up on that thing? Uh, not a lot of people here, okay, uh, I guess. Uh, but, uh, you know, like, uh, I used to do this sometimes in college ministry. You know, my friend Jacob Boyd would slap one of those things up between a couple of trees, and uh, I would look like an idiot because I can't really do it. Uh, but I would recognize, okay, yeah, so I have to, like, you know, stand up there, put a little bit of trust in the person uh, who had, like, you know, tied it up to the trees and stuff like that, trust in the material that it was made out of, that it wasn't going to snap under me and stuff like that. Um, uh, but... Uh, for the most point, I just thought it was like a fun and game, right? Like, because, you know, I'd just try and stand on it, and the thing would snap up between my legs the majority of the time, and I'd be like, done. I'm not doing this again, okay? Uh, I just wasn't made for that. I can't even sit on a hammock, y'all, okay? I have no balance when it comes to these kind of things. I didn't learn how to ride a bike until like eight years after my friends did, okay? That's an exaggeration. It was four years, sorry. But uh, really don't have that kind of balance going for me. But then, uh, at one point in time, I watched people do these incredible things on a slack line, right? Like there's a movie out there uh, where dude ties slack line between like the two towers, right? And it's basically, well, it's not a slack line, it's a tightrope, whatever, but it's basically the same thing. Or, uh, you know, you see this dude like hook up a slack line or a tightrope between like two canyons, right? And this dude's going to like traverse across from this canyon, you know, and, and do this kind of thing. And when you think about it that way, uh, and there's this big hole, like a long fall underneath of this thing, and it's not just whether it's going to snap up and hit you and leave a mark on your leg, but like whoo, that's a long ways down there. Then you're thinking, okay, in order to stand on this slack line or this tightrope, I have got to put a world of faith, a whole lot of faith, a whole lot of trust in the person that hitched that thing up on both ends. I've got to put a whole lot of trust in the material that I'm going to be standing on and, and a lot of those kind of things, right? To stand on something is, by definition, to put your faith in it to trust in it. You think, I, I think the story that we're going to look at this morning, this story right here in the midst of the whole story, is put here to remind us that standing on God's promises by faith is an essential part of following Him. It's not optional. It is an essential part of following God. Look, look at Numbers chapter 13, verse 2, just to get started this morning. Uh, it says, send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. This is God. He's saying, I am giving this to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, everyone a chief among them. Okay? The promised land, uh, check it out. It's just that. It's a land that God promised to give to his people. Do you know where God made that promise? Uh, to Israel. Do you know where God was and uh, Abram was when God promised to give it to him? Well, uh, I'm going to get there, but look at Numbers 13, 21 and 22 first. It says, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to uh, Rehob. Most of these places mean nothing to me, okay? I'm not, a very, good at, I'm not very good at geography. Near Lebo Hamath, uh, they went up into Negev and came to Hebron. 
Ahaman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. And then it has this parenthetical reference. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Y'all, what I learned this week as I studied is that we cannot overlook the importance of Hebron. The place these men went to spy out the promised land was the exact same place where God promised them the promised land. If we were to look at Genesis 17, 8, where it says, And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God promises to give them the promised land and to be their God. The very place where he made that promise is Hebron. Little application here, right? Harvest City, we cannot miss that this is what this is saying about who God is and the way that God's people completely missed it. Okay, this is how I memorized it, at least back in the day. Numbers 23, 19. It's not what it says in ESV, but it's stuck up here. I can't shake it, okay? It says, God is not man that he should lie, nor son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill. Harvest City, the God of the Bible doesn't lie. He is trustworthy. And we don't have to sit in anxiety anymore wondering if he's going to change his mind. When he speaks, he acts. When he promises, he fulfills. It's who he is. He is a trustworthy God. He is a God who keeps his promises. So as we journey through life, it's incredibly important for us to both Know what God has said. In other words, we need to be aware of all that God promised his people. I don't think these people giving in a report when they came back, uh, I don't think they were as aware of his promises as they need to be. And secondly, we must, fan, fan, we must sorry, faithfully then stand in those promises. It's not enough just to be aware that God has promised things. We must stand in them. We must trust in them. We must put our faith in the God who promises. So think about this with me in the way that this plays out in our lives. Real quick uh, example, okay? Uh, most of us, I won't make you put your hands up for this one, probably have some area of our lives, uh, we call it besetting sin, where even if we're on this end of justification, if we are in Christ, we've received grace and forgiveness in Christ, now we're children of God, uh, we, we still struggle with sin. And, and there, for a lot of us, there's like a specific area or a specific thing that we uh, still struggle with. Besetting sin is an example that, that reminds us of the already but not yet nature of the gospel, right? We are already forgiven and justified in Christ, but we are not yet uh, fully sanctified and made into the image of Christ until Jesus comes back one day. And when we're in between the already and the not yet, besetting sin can be something that plagues us and even like weighs us down right? It just, it just like gets on us and makes us like doubt maybe even God. But think about this, okay? This is a promise of God in Philippians 1.6. Paul wrote, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, standing on this promise looks like recognizing that we are an already but not yet people. That, that yes, he has justified us in Christ because of what he did on, on the cross and through his resurrection. That we are in him, but it also reminds us that there's a timeline here. 
That we are not yet fully sanctified. We are works in progress. And so to stand in that promise looks like to trust God, even in the midst of besetting sin, that as we fight to fix our eyes on Him and Him alone, that even if we're still plagued by that sin and can't seem to shake it, that doesn't mean we're not forgiven. It doesn't mean we're not in Christ. It just means that we're a people who are a work in progress and we can trust and have hope that he is going to finish the work that he's began in us. Amen? We've got to be a people that stand on the promises of God. The problem is that sin has us trying to stand on other things. Sin has us trying to stand on God's promises and our understanding. It's like we get like this, right? Instead of like on the slack line like this, you got to put your feet one in front of the other. You're like, well, what if I trust in God's strength and my strength over here, you know? Like, what if I trust in God's goodness and, well, I'm an expert in this area, so I'm going to try and trust in my own expertise. And because of this, many times we tend not to walk by faith, but by sight, y'all. You see, in the New Testament, Paul tells us, as a good reminder for me, from a friend that sent it in the text this morning, uh, that we walk by faith and not by sight. You see, I had an experience back in the day that reminded me a lot of what I think this looks like. When my dad was in the uh, SICU at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics after a horrible accident that he had, uh, I had this experience that like really shook into me what it looked like to walk by faith and not by sight. Okay, So my dad was in the SICU for quite a while, and uh, I guess I've learned from uh, some of y'all okay, that it's actually normal when somebody's in an ICU for a long amount of time that they start to struggle with this thing called ICU delirium, okay? Uh, when they don't get uh, to see the sun, like, you know, like when they're, they're stuck inside of these confined walls and they're hooked up to all these things, uh, you start to see things that aren't really there. And so uh, my dad, uh, like so many of us, being a person who had most of his life walked by sight, right, was able to trust what he saw in his eyes was actually there. And this experience uh, had a really rough time, okay? Like my dad was like trying to fight his nurses and like causing uh, huge amounts of problems for them, uh, not allowing them to do the work that they needed to do to aid in his healing process, right? So it was one morning at like 3.30 in the morning, I get a phone call from the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, and they're like, can you come up and help us? We cannot do any work on your dad. And uh, so uh, I go in there, and, uh, you know, this is another story for another day. Multiple other people in my family tried to help uh, my dad in this process. Uh, it was not helpful, okay? But for whatever reason, uh, because my dad and I share a common uh, God, right? Like, I got saved with my dad at the Promise Keepers Conference, uh, and because of our close-knit relationship, uh, I was a person that my dad trusted, I was a person that my dad put his faith in, you might say. Uh, I was a, a person that my dad had to learn to stand on what I was saying rather than what he was seeing. You see, like, he would be seeing things in the room that weren't there, and he would have to process them with me and be like, Scott, I see these purple things hanging down from the wall, and it looks like that lady over there is out to get me. And I'd be like, nah, Dad, like, uh, there ain't no purple things. Uh, we're in a hospital room. This is what this looks like. And that lady right there, she is here for your benefit and your good. She wants to help you be healed. And he would have to stand on that and trust in that in order to be able to move forward in this 
process of healing. Church, many of us are guilty of walking by sight and not by faith. And I'm not saying y'all are hallucinating, but I am saying God's word is a much better place to stand than it is in our confidence in what we see and what we perceive. You see, many of us put our confidence in our own understanding rather than in God's promises. Many of us feel so much better off making decisions in our own expertise, right? And we're, we're so much better at making, ex- making decisions in this area over here of our own expertise than we are in making decisions that God has made really clear right here in this area of his word. And we're not alone in this. This is exactly what we see God's people doing in Numbers chapter 13. When we read the text, uh, when we read the text earlier, did you notice how the spies' report was initially balanced, but the second time it was full of fear and exaggeration? I want you to compare these, okay? I'm going to read the first time through and then the second time through. Verses 27 to 29, they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, so one sentence for that, right? However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So basically, one and one. And then he just lays out the, uh, the, where the people are. The Amalekites dwell here. The uh, Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell here. And the Canaanites dwell here. So it's pretty balanced, okay? But the moment that a faith-filled leader tries to instill courage in his people and is like, let's go, y'all. We are able to receive this land. Do you see what happens? Their tune changes quite a bit. Verse 30 says, but Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are able. We are well able to overcome it, all right? This is my dude right here. Love me, Caleb. Uh, And then this is what happens. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, uh, before they said it was flowing with milk and honey. This time they say the land through which we have gone out to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. This sounds like some kind of horror movie or something, y'all. So what changed from the first report to the second one? I think the spies, the ten spies giving the bad report were filled with fear. I think they put their confidence, they stood in another place other than in the promises of God. When they heard Caleb try to lead them into receiving the promised land from God, they started walking by sight and not by faith. In their own minds, they began to stand on their own strength against the fortified cities of tall people rather than standing on the promises of God and recognizing that their strong God could just give them the land. Family, there are a number of examples of walking by sight and not by faith in this text. And we need to learn, we need to first learn from God's people what not to do and what we need to repent of before we step into this idea of standing on the promises of God. Think about this. Some of us are leaders. We have influence with other people around us, and uh, when we give a bad report, it can really cause things to downward spiral. I wonder, are you critical with your words? Is your natural bent 
to point out the obstacles in other people's stories? Or do you encourage them and remind them of God's promises? Obviously, the Holy Spirit's been racking me, like raking me over the coals this week, convicting me a ton. I think I've personally been the bad report police a number of times since we started this church. And I've been led to a place of repentance. I know that my words can have a large influence on others around me. And I want to do a better job of encouraging people, filling people with courage the way that Caleb did. And like he tried to do. To walk by faith and to stand in the promises of God. Our words matter. Others of us are filled with anxiety, right? Like uh, it's kind of the tune of our, of our culture in this season. We're filled with anxiety. And the minute that we see any kind of obstacle in our path, we, we exaggerate about it and we convince ourselves and others around us, this path isn't any good anymore. I know that's the, they told us that was the way to go before, but I don't think this is the way to go anymore. Like it's so bad out there. Yes, it is true that there were some tall men living in the promised land, y'all. However, it was definitely not true that the promised land devours its inhabitants. Scholars believe it was probably also not true that giant people called the Nephilim, who were last mentioned early on in Genesis, were actually still around. This was probably just a huge exaggeration. You see, standing in anxiety and standing in the midst of our worst case scenarios in our mind is not helping anyone else around us stand on the promises of God, is it? And still others of us are quick to complain and and seem to always think the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Look at verses 1 to 4 of Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. All of them. Not just some of them. All of them. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And here it is. And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader. Not the one God chose for us. Let us choose a leader and go back. To Egypt, not towards the promised land, back to Egypt. Harvest City, God did not promise them to go back to Egypt. God had promised them this land. And it's here that the people's fear turned into rebellion. Instead of bringing their fear before God and then uh, courageously walking in faith, they turned their back on God, they turned their back on the leaders God placed over them, and they were ready to head back into slavery. God's word reminds us to do everything without complaining and arguing. That's one we know really well in our household, isn't it, Maddie? (laughs) As his people, we have all that we need for life and godliness in Christ. But it's hard to hear that truth from God's word when we're too busy complaining and filled with envy. Don't get me wrong, y'all. I don't think we set out to be the bad report police. At least I never did. I don't think we intend to dwell on worst-case scenarios all day. I don't think we wake up in the morning excited to complain about all our circumstances that day. I think the majority of the time we stumble into walking by sight. 
And then the noise of the circumstances that we see swirling around us are so loud that we cannot quiet them in our minds and get back to even hearing the promises of God, let alone standing in them. You see, this is one of the many things that reminds us of our need for Jesus. Harvest City, Jesus is the true and better Caleb. He is the true and better leader who quiets our anxiety so that we can follow him by faith. Did you notice Caleb and Joshua's leadership here trying to faithfully lead God's people to the promised land, even though 10 out of 12 of the other spies are spewing anxiety all over the people and fearfully leading them to turn their backs on God? The first thing Caleb does was to quiet the people and to remind them that they are well able to overcome the obstacles in front of them. And then after the people had rebelled, both he and Joshua tore their clothes. They grieved the sins of the people and they reminded them of God's promises. They said, this land, it's an exceedingly good land. They said, if God delights in us, then he will bring us into this land. In neither of these circumstances did God's people turn from their rebellion and return to standing in God's promises. But y'all, this was good leadership nonetheless. But we don't just have a good leader, y'all. We have a true and better leader in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Caleb, as a leader, he quieted the people down so that he could speak. But Jesus goes far beyond that. Jesus says to the winds and the waves, he says, hush. When Jesus quiets something down, he can go a whole other step. Jesus goes far beyond merely quieting the people's mouths. Jesus quiets the mouths of even his critics by dying the death that they deserved and rising from the grave. Think about probably the most common reaction in the first century to the death and resurrection of Jesus was probably speechlessness. But Jesus doesn't just quiet our mouths. Jesus quiets our hearts. Today, when we put our faith in Christ, we don't receive the gift of the promised land. Instead, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We don't go to a place where God promises to be with us. He comes to us to live in us. By faith in the good news of the gospel, God now lives in us, and he has, to, he has the power, just like he does to the wind and the waves, to turn off the noise in our hearts. The Holy Spirit can quiet our fears. The Holy Spirit uh, can overcome the critical spirit inside of me. The Holy Spirit can empower us to walk by faith. Family, Jesus is the best leader there has ever been. He has led a movement of the gospel that lasted for generations and generations, has spread from the Middle East into nation after nation. Even when we find ourselves under poor earthly leadership, we can faithfully follow him. Not in our own strength, not in our own understanding, not in our own might, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk for a minute about how God quiets our anxiety. You see, when aggrieved Caleb and Joshua spoke to a rebellious people and tried to rally them toward obedience, they said, if the Lord delights in us, right? If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into a new land and give it to us. Harvest City, hear now the good news of the gospel. Jesus takes away the if. 
Y'all, we don't have to sit around wondering if God delights in us any longer. In Christ, we know that God delights in us. Jesus has done everything necessary to prove to us that God delights in us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is the death of Christ that proves once for all that God delights in you and that God God delights in me. Jesus' death and resurrection is the proof that we need when we're anxious, when, when thoughts are swirling in our mind, when we're riddled with doubts. We just think on what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. The gift of God's grace given to us by faith in Jesus Christ is sufficient to quiet our anxiety. You see, if God has given you his own son, it says in Romans 8, how much more then can we trust him to graciously give us all things? Harvest City, the gospel of grace is such good news that fear mongers, that people ridden with anxiety and even constant complainers can come to him and receive forgiveness. Because the gospel is good news of a rescuer, we can take heart that God's grace is sufficient for both us and them. Because God's grace is sufficient for fear mongers who provoke us with bad reports day after day on social media. Think about it. We get pricked into fear and anxiety so often by the things that we're reading on the internet or on social media. God's grace is even sufficient for them. God's grace is sufficient for leaders like me who are overly critical and unintentionally lead people into rebellion. God's grace is sufficient for those who have constantly complained for the last few years. Church, God created you. God delights in you. He loves you so much that he sacrificed his one and only son to prove his love to you. The question is, have you received the gift of grace found in Jesus? And if so, if you are his people, do you walk by faith or do you walk by sight? Because in Christ, through our identity in Christ, we are a people of promise who are able to overcome, just like Caleb said. Family, if you've been paying attention to the whole story at all, then you're probably aware that our God is a God of promise. We had a whole sermon where we talked about our God being a promise-keeping God, right? Our God is a covenant God. We live in the middle of this promise with Him. He keeps His promises even when we are unfaithful. It's who He is. He, he has promised not this, this uh, land to these people, but he's for, this is the big one, right? He says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He speaks and he acts. He promises and he fulfills. He intends to keep that promise no matter what the cost. And if our God is a God of promise, then that makes us a people of promise. And being a people of promise looks like standing in the promises of God even when we see obstacles in front of us. Look at verse 31 with me of chapter 13. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able. Right? That's really different from what Caleb said. He says, we are able. They say, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. Church, 10 out of 12 This is more than the majority, right? Like this is almost everybody, you could say. 
10 out of 12 leaders sent to spy out the promised land chose to be people of perspective rather than people of promise. From their perspective, with their eyes, they were not able. After spending 40 days looking over the promised land and returning with fruit that proved this land to be a land flowing with milk and honey, their statement shows that they were only evaluating the present situation from a human perspective. And as a result, they have no courage. Church, these men never made it to the promised land. Not a single one of them. 10 out of 10 never made it to the promised land. But you know who did? Caleb and Joshua, my dude, he made it to the promised land. In stark contrast to these people of perspective, Caleb and Joshua showed themselves to be a people of promise. Caleb and Joshua knew that their God was a God of promise and that he had promised to give his land to these people. Caleb and Joshua knew that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, that God had parted the Red Sea for his people to walk through on dry land, that God had swallowed up those who were coming after them in that sea right after that, and that God was right there with them every step of the journey. And because they knew who God was, they knew what God had done, they were able to stand in their identity as a people of promise. Y'all, they knew that if God had promised to give his people the land, then it wasn't up to his people to fight against tall people or strong people and take over the land. They knew that God would fight for them and that God would give them what he had promised. Because when God speaks, he acts. When he promises, he fulfills. Harvest City, we too are a people of promise. And we too will overcome by faith in our God and faith in his promises. Look one more time with me at Caleb's encouragement to the people. Y'all, this got me big time this week. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and occupy it. He doesn't even talk about fighting against them, right? He's like, let's just go be there. Let's occupy it. For we are well able to overcome it. Caleb says, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Caleb's perspective was not looking at this situation merely from a human perspective. Caleb, standing in the promises of God, knew that they were able to overcome the obstacles in front of them. Because why? Because his we wasn't just about the people around him. His we included his God who had promised and said that I will be your God and you will be my people. His we wasn't just a horizontal we. His we included the God of the universe who had promised to give him this land. Caleb didn't think that they would be able to overcome these strong people in fortified cities and the descendants of Anak by their strength or their size or their might. He knew that God's people would be able to overcome because God's people are people of promise. Harvest City, in Christ, we have all that we need for life and godliness. It's one of the best promises in the New Testament. John 16, 33 says, I have said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. That's not anxiety, y'all. That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I 
have overcome the world, Jesus says. Church, in, in, in another place in the New Testament, it says we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. And we need to remember that we will not overcome through our wisdom. We will not overcome through our great understanding. We will not overcome merely through our strength or through our willpower. Instead, we are able to overcome because of who God is, because of what he has done, and because of who we are in Christ. Harvest City, let me put it to you like this. Jesus is the realtor walking you through each and every decision you make in life. Jesus is so wise that he understands everything about the world around you and knows what is best for you in every situation. He's never going to point you in the wrong direction. Jesus is the realtor walking us through every decision in our lives. Jesus is so good, y'all. He's, he's, the, the, he's so good. He's the only sinless human being ever to walk the earth. You can trust that he will never forsake you. Jesus is the realtor walking us through every decision in our lives, y'all, if we are in Christ. And Jesus is incredibly sovereign. His Father has placed everything, the Bible says. That means everything, not just some of it, everything under his authority. His plan for you, it will never be thwarted. When Jesus tells you that this house is for you, y'all, you just stand in that house until he tells you otherwise, okay? When Jesus tells you this is the direction you should go, you head in that direction and you keep going until he tells you otherwise. When Jesus tells you, this is it, Scott. Love this person the way that I have loved them. Well, you just keep loving. And you do everything, not just in your power, right? You keep loving beyond your power, tapping into his strength and the power of the Holy Spirit to love that person because he has never steered you wrong. This is who he is. Family, Jesus has told us so much more than this, just than what house to go to or what direction or who to love. He's given us so many promises. We need only stand in his promises this morning. Y'all, one of the ways that we stand in his promises uh, is through uh, this rhythm in the church of receiving communion or receiving the Lord's prayer or the Lord's supper sorry in Luke 22 19 and 20 Jesus had taken the disciples up in the upstairs room and he says and he took bread he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you Y'all, there's uh, a number of different ways that I lead us before the Lord's table, uh, but one of them, I just want you to hear uh, one of them, how much it sounds like it's just uh, encouraging us, prodding us to stand in the promises as we receive uh, the body and the blood of Christ. It says, at the heart of the Christian life is active trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death for sin, right? Think about active trust. Think about that. You might even call it standing on the promises of God, right? 
In this symbolic meal originating from Jesus' last supper with his disciples, we express and strengthen our own trust in him as we eat and drink with our brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, this is one way that we communally stand together on the promises of God week after week is by taking the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an outward and visible sign of the grace shown to us in the death of our Savior. As we share the bread and the wine or the juice together, we're invited to feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. We're faced again with God's love for the unworthy. That's us. And we're strengthened by faith in the one whose body was given and whose blood was shed for us. So the call then is to come with heartfelt repentance and genuine trust, standing on the promises of our Lord Jesus, recognizing the significance of sharing in this way. So if in good conscience it would not be right for you to participate, participate please use this time to reflect on God's love for us in Christ. But let's, uh, let's respond to the good news of the gospel together this morning. We're all encouraged to sing from the bottom of our hearts at the top of our lungs. Y'all, there's going to be people back in the back to pray with today. I would encourage you, if you know uh, that you're struggling uh, with fear or, or there's a promise that you're just doubting, man, would you just come back? We'd love to pray over you and instill um, you know, faith and confidence as much as we can one to another in you. And lastly, then we'll, we'll just come up, those who are going to receive the elements, just come up the center aisle, uh, receive uh, the gluten-free bread or the white grape juice or the red wine and go back to your seat. Uh, in the outside aisle. Will you all pray with me? God, just like uh, I was well aware of this this week and this morning, I would guess a number of us have found ourselves throughout our days uh, being more like people uh, of perspective, people walking by sight than people of the promises who are walking by faith in you. And God, I thank you for the good news of the gospel that uh, says that no matter how many times or how long we've been walking by sight, God, that we can find forgiveness in Christ. We can be transformed. We can be transferred from one dominion of darkness into, into the kingdom of your beloved son in Christ. How much more then can in our day to day we receive grace and help in our time of need? God, would you meet us in this place this morning? Would you put on our hearts right now a promise from you because all the promises are yes and amen in Jesus. Would we be able to hold on to that, cling to that, and stand in that promise this morning and throughout this week? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.